Bringing Humanities to Life at Bismarck State College presents Humanities in Person, a conversational series about the humanities. I'm Associate Professor of English, Michael Tomanek, and joining me today is Dr. Jane Schreck, Professor of English. Hi, Jane. Hi, Michael. So tell me, Michael, what made you decide to be an English major? Well, um, I suppose there's several stories that, that I could really start with. I mean, it really ultimately goes back to eighth grade when I fell in love with uh, poetry for the first time in Edgar Allan Poe. Um, maybe a little cliche for the English major. Um, I wasn't always the strongest student, uh, particularly in junior high and high school, but I really, uh, I, I, I really wanted to start writing as an eighth grader and well, and that's not even true. It goes back even further than that. But that's where I really started to understand what writing could do for me. And that Christmas, my mom and dad bought me the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and the rest is history. I, I think it <laughs> no, started. No, the rest is English, Michael. The rest is English. Excuse me. Yes, um, but no. I, I think my first poem I ever wrote was a one was a really bad one about an earthquake, and then my great grandma died. <laughs> And I wrote I, I wrote a poem about about that uh, and gave it to my mom and um, from there I just kept on writing and perhaps it got a little bit better uh, I know it got a little bit better but um, there was only one direction to go with it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but really after that I mean I explored English classes uh, for the most part in in high school more along the creative field really looking to write. Um, I really, even though I had the love for Poe and, and poetry, I, I wasn't a strong reader um, until I got to college. And I, after a year of being a geology major, I switched it over to English because uh, I knew math and science were going to be a struggle. And I and I always felt in the back of in, in the back of me <laughs> that I, that that there was a writer in me. And the idea, kind of the romanticized idea of going to graduate school appealed to me. But after five semesters at the University of North Dakota, I ended up dropping out and moving to Minneapolis and wanted to be the poet in the big city for five years. Well, I, the five years was not the plan. The plan was to go back to college maybe within a year. But um, I ended up getting a nine to five style job working in the copy print center at a hospital. And I remember to this day the the day the moment that I decided, hey, I'm going to go back to college, and it, it, this I I think this is kind of where I wanted to go as far as starting this story. Um, so, like I said, working for this print and document center um, at a hospital over the lunch hour, um, we actually had a McDonald's in the hospital. <laughs> Felt kind of weird, <laughs> but. Um, so, but the benefit of it, so this is in Minneapolis, uh, Abbott Northwestern Hospital and the Sister Kinney Institute. Um, every year they had a, an art show that was specifically for artists with disabilities, whether it was related to mental disabilities or physical disabilities. Uh, and it was international. And I'm sitting there, or rather walking, I have my Walkman on. I'm not kidding, it was a Walkman. <laughs> And I'm listening to cassettes, uh, kind of finishing my, my beverage from lunch, and I'm looking at all of this art. And I turn around and I see this person um, helping, like a stroke victim, 
learn how to 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 cook again because they had like some kitchen model kitchens they had fake buses all where they were helping people kind of get their life back on track and all where the art is displayed too all where the art is displayed oh. it, it, it was all throughout the hallways of, of of this wing in the hospital and i realized i was in a job that was making me completely unhappy <laughs> and unfulfilled and and I just I, I I saw myself going nowhere for that company in that in that field, and I went home that night. I called my mom and said, "Mom, I think I'm ready to go back to college." And I think uh, just just to clarify, watching somebody else work with a stroke victim made you realize there was nothing sort of alive in what you were doing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, like working for the bottom line of a. Of a business company contracted by a hospital worrying about budgets for for making money. Uh, I mean, it just, the business model just didn't appeal to me. No passion in that line of work for you like you could see in this therapist. Correct. Yes. Okay. I gotcha. I, I, I realized I wanted to work with people and help people, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, whatever that meant at the time. I, just money wasn't the thing that was driving me. Um, and so, so, like I said, I called my mom and, and said that I'm, I, I'm ready to go back to college, which floored her in, in positive ways because for a long time she didn't think I was going to go back. Uh, with another funny story in and of itself. But um, that night I applied to go back at, at MSUM in Moorhead and Within three to four months, I had moved all my stuff to Moorhead and re restarted my education on a path toward, um, well, at that time, I was a dual major with art and English. Um, and I, I dropped the secondary ed part right quick hmm. um, because I just wanted to be an English major. I didn't want any tag or qualification on there. I just wanted to study English. I wanted to get the full, the, the, the full effect of that. And after 10 years in Moorhead, I moved here. <laughs> <laughs> so to rush through the back, but um, there are other parts of that story that we might get to later, but I want to hear wh what about you? Why, why did you end up taking this direction with your studies? Well, I started as a journalism major because I love to write and I realized I didn't really like uh, journalistic kind of uh, writing. And, you know, the, the most consistent advice about how to be a good writer is to read. And so I thought, yeah, well, I better take some literature classes. I better read if I intend to write. So second semester of freshman year, I switched majors. And uh, there you go. So you went from journalism to just a straight English. Yeah, well, um, there was also education in there because I was thinking in terms of teaching. And then also, you know, why not math as well? So I, <laughs> I do have a major, an undergraduate degree in math and an undergraduate degree in English and an undergraduate degree in secondary education. Which, of course, the first two pairings I, I just find delightful in what I used to feel was one of the polar opposite things. Uh, but... And like I said, one of the reasons I didn't pursue geology after that first year be was because of the math. Yeah. But I remember 
having a conversation with a math professor, and I was a student at this time, and I, I, I kind of made that joke, and he looked at me, and he says, why? Math is just a language. It's just with It has its own grammar, just like English. That's true. And it, yeah, it changed the way I, th- I think about it. And to this day, I kind of want to go back and take a math class, but <laughs> that would be getting off track on this conversation. <laughs> that would. I will tell you one thing. I went far enough in math. Um, I went about as far as I think I can go in math, but I was taking an advanced calculus class, and literally the professor was erasing the board with one hand while filling it with another. And I had never seen a professor do that before because we didn't, we had a textbook, but we didn't use it. He just put everything on the board and we were supposed to copy it all down. It was mind blowing. That's as far as I got in math, but it was enough. What appeals to me about that is not, I mean, it tells me that I was, I was smart to focus on English, not, not math, because I can't tell you a thing about what he was writing on the board, but the image of him <laughs> erasing and writing simultaneously seems more poetic than mathematical. So was he actually erasing the current thing he was writing on, or was he moving on to other things? He was moving on to other things, but he was filling the board so fast with all this, as you say, language grammar of math um, he, he he just had to clear the board. Okay. For a minute there, I thought it's like he started the sentence, ran out of room, and as he's finishing the sentence, he's erasing the first half of it. It's like no, no, that no. would be that would be masterwork. That would be masterwork, <laughs> and and pretty maddening for the students. Yes. I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> but I always felt more at home in Merrifield Hall at UND than I did in Whitmer Hall. Um, I don't. I'm not sure it's called Whitmer Hall anymore, but that's where the math classes were. Yeah, there's something very romantic about Merrifield. Oh yeah. Um, I even though I only spent five semesters at UND, there I, I have fond memories of that building and just and and that idea what you said about feeling at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt that same way at Weld Hall at Moorhead. Mm. Um, it just it had that English feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, not that Leah Hall doesn't have that, but it doesn't really have it yet. Still has the the new the, the new building glow to it. Yeah. Well, Merrifield looks very classically college to me, and uh, I, I I liked that. I guess. Yeah, yeah. And philosophy was in the same building as was journalism. So it's not just the building; <laughs> it's history was there too. Well, and and I guess that made me think of one of the things I was what you were telling about your story with the journalism and, and, and some of the changes and, and as well as the education in there. Our field has changed a little bit as far, I guess it depends on not only the school, but also uh, perhaps a little bit of the time. Because I know at Moorhead, I had my choice between being a literature major, being a writing major, um, the mass comm English major, and then the English major secondary ed tie. So there was four different um, emphasis emphases that I could take um, as, as an English major, but even though they all shared the same core classes, I, I, I had those directions to choose from. And I don't know if I would have, if it's the same now, or if, it, if it's maybe been streamlined, 
Well, and I think different colleges uh, do it differently. And, you know, what I did all those many years ago doesn't matter. I remember more in my uh, master's program that we had a choice of British literature, American literature, or English language as the emphasis. And I kind of straddled American lit and English language. But don't you want to know what my thesis was that straddled American lit and English language? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) All right, I'll tell you. I did um, an analysis of Mark Twain's book, The Innocents Abroad. And in particular, my focus was on how he manages to write things that are funny. And, and I argued, I called it animated laughter, and I argued that um, through a number of different techniques, he was able to almost create visual cartoons for the reader. Uh, and, you know, he's known for his hyperbole and, and so on. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was, <laughs> that was my, my thesis. So when you say analysis, from what you described, I'm hearing kind of more of a rhetorical analysis than the traditional literary analysis. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, although I did, I did put that book into the, you know, the, the history of uh, American humor at the time with tall tales and, and that sort of thing. But then also, you know, that, was, uh, that book was travel literature. And travel literature was huge at the time. And then uh, the other thing, uh, <laughs> the other thing was, you sold books kind of by the pound <laughs> at that time in the publishing business. So the longer the book, the better. Wow. And then the other interesting thing about it was that um, it's it's sort of like a stand-up comic who tries out his material at a. Uh, comedy club, and then he puts it together for an HBO special. He he had these uh, as lectures first, and then he wove them together into a sort of an episodic book about traveling, um, well, to all kinds of places, but I remember for sure he was in the Holy Lands and uh, Egypt. And when, what part of his life was he writing this? Um, really early. Uh, oh. I think it was right right after he left California, I think. He went on this cruise. And, uh, yeah, Michael, this is going back a long, long way. Um, you know, my, my master's w- was completed in 1983. So... <laughs> yeah, it's, Fair it's enough. Been, it's, been, it's been a while. It's been a while. But... But yeah, I think it was it was it might have been one of his first published books. Okay. Um, so be- before um, the Huck Finn Tom Sawyer era, oh yeah. Oh yeah. and definitely before he got a little salty about uh, humanity and uh, it, American bef- imperialism. Um, he's he's uh, well, no, there's a little bit of that. Um, there's a. Um, I don't think he's salty so much as sardonic, um, and and you the other the other thing I remember noting is this tension between sort of uh, admiring the old world as we were expected to do and sort of taking shots at it at the same time. 
Um, you know, so he'd see some, you know, beautiful painting of, of something from the Renaissance and, you know, well, who was the artist? And they'd say who the artist was. And then his sort of standard catchphrase after that was, parents living? <laughs> the artist himself had been dead for 300 years, so obviously. So it's that kind of absurdity and that kind of undercutting of, uh, you know, what's regarded as high culture that that pervades that book. Hmm. Yeah. But it was the way he said things that charmed me and also that I was interested in analyzing. And, and you know, of course, the minute you analyze a joke, it loses all its humor. <laughs> well. If you have to explain the punchline, right? But... Um, I don't know. He, there were just a lot of techniques that I admired a great deal and probably have uh, incorporated into my own writing sometimes, even unawares. See, I, I, I think what you're describing is kind of how I got to Twain myself. Oh, yeah? Um, as a grad student, uh, my second semester teaching, uh, well, it would have been my first semester teaching 120, my second semester teaching, because at, at the time... As a grad student, we taught two sections each semester, 110 in the fall, 120 in the, in, in the spring. And the, the 120 there was, was, it was still genre-based writing, but it had a leadership focus. And I decided to do it all um, kind of through different Twain texts. Mm. And it was, it was from a collection called Mark Twain on the Damned Human Race. A later work. Um, well, uh, yes, uh, much um, all nonfiction, all all past the time of, of Huck Finn going down the river, but I fell in I, I fell in love with his use of language and satire and, and the yep. way that he had an ability to address at the time contemporary issues uh, in a way that really kind of made you think about them. Um, with the juxtaposition of, of inconsistencies. And, and I, I remember a, a letter, uh, uh, it was like a letter to the editor, I think he wrote to Harper, um, that he signed Satan. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of almost reminds me of Jonathan Swift in a way, and that you can read this piece and go, wait a minute, he's not talking about eating babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's something more there, and that, and, and I think it, where 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 I how I kind of got there in 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 addition to the kind of the English major root is I had a really. Um, a love for stand-up comedy uh -huh. in, in the 1980s and the 1990s and how it was, I saw it more as just somebody delivering jokes at, at the Yak Shack um, and, and how it was really social commentary of the time. Yes. And, and I kind of saw Mark Twain as um, maybe the Richard Pryor or, 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 <laughs> or the Dennis Miller um, from Saturday Night Live era um, commenting on the on the happenings of the day in a very... Um, sarcastic, sardonic, satirical way. Yeah. Well, and, and Innocence Abroad reads sort of like that on a cruise with, <laughs> with a bunch of people to the Holy Lands. So and I assume your master's work was well-received by your committee. Um, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah. 
I sort of just outweighed them um, in the midst of trying to finish um, the thesis. I, you know, had a baby, moved to Bismarck. I'm sure they thought I would never actually finish, but I, I fooled them. <laughs> <laughs> I fooled them all. Yeah, I did. And your master's work, Michael? Well, so um, at, when I was at Moorhead finishing my undergrad, um, kind of what I was saying before, how I, I had the four options between English lit, creative writing, mass comm, or teaching, um, I went the creative writing route because, I mean, like I said, it was the writing that really drew me to it. So when it came time... To, once I had my BA, uh, I, I had some choices to make. And f after taking the semester off and graduating, I decided to go to um, take some night classes to, to get my secondary ed because I thought, okay, well, this is going to be the most practical thing. <laughs> and then after spending 32 hours in a high school classroom uh, in West Fargo, I thought, eh, wait a minute, I think graduate school might be more my... Um, avenue of approach that I would like to go. Uh, and circumstance, convenience, all sorts of different things led me to NDSU because uh, I was currently living in Moorhead at the time. And so I, I, I would rather have gone, or rather I made the choice to go get my master's degree as a master's of arts rather than a master's of fine arts because I could have gone to Moorhead as a creative writing student. but. Um, like I had mentioned earlier, I felt like I was a really underread English major, and I didn't want to just spend three more years in writing workshops. So I got the lit focus, and it was after it would have well, it would have been the spring of '06 um, that I took my first Native American literature course, and it was it was supposed to be a seminar class um, with with, with uh, Dr. Hellstern, and, and it turned out I was the only one who signed up for it. <laughs> um, it but they they let it run, so it ran mostly like an independent study where I read a different novel every week. Uh, Sunday was my day to read a novel. It was a different time. I kind of wish I had those days back. <laughs> um, but I, I fell in love with Native Lit at the time, for, for I think for, for multiple reasons, but part of it was I really didn't know what it was. I mean, or at least once I learned what it was, I was more interested. Uh, I think uh, as an undergrad uh, and, and pre-grad, uh, I always kind of just assumed it was going to be Black Elk Speaks and, and more traditional or his, rather historical texts that rather than, oh, wow, these are contemporary Native writers writing from the Native perspective about things happening today, so to speak. And, and after a semester of reading novels from all over North America from these Native writers, I just, I, I, I knew that I had found something or stumbled onto something that I really wanted to pursue. Uh, and I ended up uh, writing an analysis of Thomas King's Truth and Bright Water. Thomas King is, himself is Cherokee, but 
has since relocated to Canada and writes a lot about the Blackfoot or the Blackfeet, depending on what side of the border you're on. Just north of Montana, right? Yes, yeah. yes. In fact, the, the novel Truth and Brightwater is set on the Canadian-Montana border mm-hmm. um, in the late 90s. Um, so dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of the issues that I that I'm familiar with growing up in the Bismarck Mandan area mm-hmm. and um, I, I suppose the rest is history or, or <laughs> English again but um, I to this day uh, in fact my my 120 students are currently reading their first 95 pages of that novel uh-huh. um, perhaps as we share this conversation. Uh, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out on Tuesday. <laughs> oh, well, then they probably won't start reading it till Monday. They better not. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, 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 I kind of through happenstance, I, I found my field in native lit. Um, and, oh, I mean, part of my field, I should say. Well, let's back up a minute. You said you made the choice. You thought you would become a better writer if you did more reading. Can you can you pinpoint some ways um, that that affected your writing? Wow, good question. Um, we can circle back to this if you're not ready. Well, specific. I don't know if I can if I can immediately go to one thing and say yes, this is. Um, this is what it taught me, but I, I, I think, I think it helped me understand the diversity of voices hmm. um, that a writer or a novelist or a poet just wasn't one thing, and that there that there were many ways to get there, and once you're there, there were many things you could be. Um, so to speak, in that field, mm-hmm. um, that it just wasn't writing the American traditional short story and, and really understanding the differences between um, realism and postmodernism and, and kind of how all of that related. Um, I just felt more comfortable. I don't know, it sounds silly, but just uh, I, I think it helped me find a stronger voice in my own writing to hear the the myriad voices that have written and spoken before me. Yeah, that I think that's that's a good answer right oh. off the cuff like that. That's oh. well done, well done. <laughs> so it's worthwhile to study literature is another way to put this. I think it's also maybe an empathetic human being. Oh yeah, or even a better one. <laughs> well, it's it's true. You know, you can you can discover a lot about human psychology by studying literature. In fact, you know, the famous uh, I don't know if it's so famous, but it's the old old idea that before there was the discipline of psychology, we had storytelling, and every. Every um, psychological thing going on, it happens in literature, in stories, in songs at some point. Um, One of my particular fascinations is uh, the two stories, um, Soldier's Home by Hemingway, which was written right after World War I about a soldier who'd returned from World War I, and The Red Convertible by Louise Erdrich. And that's written about a soldier coming back from Vietnam. It was written probably in the 70s, late 70s. 
But the point is, we had not actually identified uh, post-traumatic stress disorder until the early 80s. And both of these are portraits of, of someone very much suffering from what appears to be post-traumatic stress disorder. And so, you know, it's not like they read a textbook and said, oh, here are the classic sy symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And, uh, but it's, it's, you look at it and that's exactly what's happening. And, and it's funny that you bring that up because one of my other um, focuses um, as far as writers, it was Wilfred Owen, the, the British officer in World War One. Oh yeah. Who I believe at that time they called it shell shock. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if that's a politically correct term anymore. In, mm. in fact, a couple of weeks ago, although it, it'll be out well before this is, um, and, and, and one of my, I started writing crossword puzzles and I had PTSD as one of the, one of the words on my grid and, and I was going to write shell shock as the clue and I wasn't sure if that was appropriate anymore. Um, well, the, the little bit of research I've done on PTSD, they called it soldier's heart in the Civil War. It's not like we just invented it with the Vietnam generation, but they called it soldier's heart in the Civil War, shell shock in World War I, and uh, battle fatigue in World War II. So they, they, it was the same phenomenon, but they described it with a different name in each case. Um, so what was it called in Vietnam? Uh, probably it was still called battle fatigue, but it was after it was really the the, the Vietnam veterans um, and the struggles they were having, and you know their struggles were so much worse because on top of everything else, it was such an unpopular war and they hadn't won it. It wasn't like they, you know, the World War II generation that came home to parades and and uh, you know you saved the world, you know that that kind of talk, and so it was really the. Um, the Vietnam generation that ca was sort of the um, catalyst or, or the the study group, I guess, for PTSD. And now nowadays, I mean, as far as all of the other wars that we've been in since, unfortunately, plural, um, it's it's a very common diagnosis. Um, it is, yeah. Probably because of what's happened in the last hundred years and specifically with Vietnam of what to recognize and how to how different ways to treat it rather than going back to Owens. I mean, the idea then was get them back to the front as quickly as possible, <laughs> yeah. which I think was the same philosophy, at least in MASH. Yes. I, I assume that was somewhat accurate in Korea, yeah. but the, the yeah. sooner you can get back to the front, the sooner they were going to get better. Um, even though, Wilford, I think, spent at least three or four different trips to Scotland's hospital. Yeah. Well, and, and part of the what they are finding is successful in treating uh, PTSD is getting, getting them busy with something. So, for example, Henry in Red Convertible, they just let him sit and watch television because they don't know what else to do with him. And that as we know from effective treatment now, that's exactly the wrong thing to have done. And, you know, he kind of springs to life again when he starts working on the car. Um, but, you know, the, the car gets finished at some point and then he loses his purpose. But you need a purpose. And 
you know, I think there's a lot of fragmentation of culture now. And so um, soldiers with PTSD come back to a very fragmented culture um, where, you know, after, after World War II, Soldiers probably, veterans probably came back to a, a pretty cohesive culture. The expectation was that they get back, you know, right to work, so that they they have a, a a purpose. And 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 again, of course, they were the the victors of the universe. Um, but I suspect a lot of alcoholics in that generation were self medicating for PTSD. Um, we didn't we didn't know what it was and we didn't know what to do about it. We have much better. There's also some really interesting, this is getting way off the subject, but this is the kind of thing, let, let me pull it back to being an English major. This is the kind of thing you can get um, interested in and find out about because of the, the skills and the disciplines you have as an uh, uh, English major. Okay, so that said... Um, they're doing some interesting work now with uh, resilience training in the military. So they've, they've found some things that make people more resilient, soldiers more resilient to developing PTSD, um, and they try to cultivate those sorts of things. Part of it is knowing who you are and, you know, where you came from and, you know, your, sort of your p- position in the universe, you know, but also mindfulness and um, meditation and, and, you know, in the moment, being very aware of your surroundings, all of those kinds of things um, make you less likely to develop PTSD, Mm. according to what the military is trying now. So kind of fascinating stuff, but it's all right there in literature. Right. And I'll tell you something else. (laughs) Um, the stu- uh, there, there are two stories uh, from the author Wendell Berry about a character who was in World War II, and he was in some really terrible stuff in World War II. And the first story is called Making It Home, and he, um, he goes you know, about as far as he can, and then he's maybe 18 hours by foot from home, and so he decides he's going to just walk home. And he walks all one day, and and the whole time it's it's the, his war experience is uh, given in flashbacks and and all of that. And he's trying to get home to his family farm, and he's you know while he's remembering some of these awful things he's been through, he's also thinking, boy, it's a nice day. I got to get to work. We got to get the crops in. You know, he's very and and, and then the other story is like 37 years later, same character, and he's out for a walk uh, on his farm that he's lived on, that his family has lived on for generations. And it's that kind of meditative life close to nature. This is something else they've found that is sort of naturally healing for for, uh, um, people with uh, PTSD. And he... um, Oh, I was coming to a big point, and now I lost my lost my point. But anyway, you get the you get the sense that all the things that they're finding out are um, healing to anyone with PTSD 
he sort of returned to that life naturally, uh, accidentally, you know, because it was his life. The character. The character. Yeah, 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 the character. And um, it's very clear that he doesn't develop PTSD, even though in the first story, it's very clear that he might have. Oh, I think the other thing was he has a very clear sense of who he is because he He's, you know, when he's walking on the farm, he's thinking about his ancestors and the, you know, the other people he's known that lived on that same land. So he has this very clear sense of, of who he is and why he's there. He's there to take care of his land. Um, anyway, it's, it's an interesting little study of somebody that should have developed PTSD but didn't kind of by happenstance. In hmm. fact, one of the most interesting lines in that first story is he decides to spend the night uh, and sleep in a little country church because he's afraid he'll be too tired to stop when he gets home if he just keeps walking. And it, it's such a kind of a, a, a contradictory idea You'd think if he's that tired, he would want to stop. But he's afraid if he's that tired, he'll just keep walking and he won't turn off at home and he may never find his way home again. Wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And that probably happened to a lot of soldiers returning from World War II, by the way, because for many it was the first time they'd probably been away from home at all. True. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I, I go on and on. We could talk about PTSD all day. But. We, we could. But the point is uh, you, can, you can pick out almost any um, psychological or sociological phenomenon that we study in those other disciplines, and there is probably a story uh, that portrays it um, already existing. Well, and to be fair, I think there are stories about everything that <laughs> um, that that could possibly happen to the in, within the human condition or the human the, yep. the human lifespan. Yep. Um, and, and that just reading, even if it's fictitious, just reading the ideas and the thought processes of others makes us better people, makes us better yep. thinkers, um, hopefully better citizens, if we can understand not not just understand our neighbors. But give some consideration to to your understanding of your neighbors. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, I, I always tell my students that like there are twenty of you in the room. Trust me, none of you think the same. For as for as much for as much as we may be similar, we are all very very different. And you don't have to agree with them, but just try to understand their point of view. Yeah. Um, and now uh, reading na native literature, contemporary in that, I'm, I'm trying to get them to at least, especially, I guess, the, one, the students who are, are non-native, because I, I assume there, are, there may be some native students in the room, um, but to try to understand these issues not from the outsider looking in with judgment, but Try to, I mean, as best you can through the eyes of, of the characters that these writers have created because they're not, they don't have the same lives, backgrounds, and belief systems that any of us do. I mean, that goes for anybody. I mean, 
Sure. I do a similar um, little lesson in um, business and tech writing or introduction to professional writing when we're talking about collaborating and um, um, collaborating um, uh, with other cultures uh, or uh, gender collaboration, right? And there, you know, the book doesn't do justice to the complexities and nuances of either of those situations. But I try to just sort of sum it up that, you know, we're all used to seeing the world through our own head. And you got to remember, not everybody thinks the same way you do. And this is a lesson you have to keep relearning and relearning and relearning. And one way to do that is is definitely through through literature. Well, uh, kind of what you said takes me back to the first week of every 110 class I ever seem to teach. Um, and that's going, we, one of the first things I have my 110 students read is a commencement speech by uh, the late author David Foster Wallace mm. that he delivered in, at, the, at the graduation of Kenyon College in 2005, I want to say. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that it really gets across in, in the first part of the speech is that you are not the center of the universe <laughs> no matter what you were told growing up that that the, the I mean in, in all seriousness that the world doesn't revolve around you and that to me it, it, it's giving other people the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. let them discern their trust rather than just not give it to them oh the additional lesson for collaborating on the job in a writing project is once you figure out how somebody is thinking differently, see how you can make use of that. You know, how, how can you um, uh, capitalize on people's different talents and different outlooks? And uh, again, that's a, that's a valuable lesson to learn. That's uh, a soft skill that you can – there's no class to teach that, I mean, no. at least specifically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and just – my saying it isn't as effective as them learning it through doing some group work, of course, but. So, uh, not necessarily changing gears, but kind of just thinking about, I mean, we've talked uh, quite a bit about our our education backgrounds and how we got there. Um, There's no... um, it's no secret that there's 20-some years between your master's degree and you becoming a teacher at Bismarck State College. How'd that happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, indolence and laziness, maybe? No, no. <laughs> I, 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 I was working as a, as a um, freelance writer. I was writing some fiction. I you know, got a couple of short stories published. Um, uh, but mainly I was, um, you know, raising kids. And I know people do raise uh, – in in this day and age, they're able to raise kids and hold a full-time job. But apparently I was not <laughs> capable of doing that. So, you know, it was just – it was sort of a choice we made as a, as a, a family or, you know, with, with my husband – but uh, anyway, yeah, that's, that's it. Uh, and it wasn't quite tw- 20 years. I did uh, work uh, – I taught part-time at the University of Mary for a couple of years in the 90s. And uh, 
but yeah, my 1983 finished my master's degree and then started here in uh, January of 2000. And never had an idea in my head that I would pursue any further education. And next thing I knew, I'm taking the first class of a doctoral program that was being delivered um, on campus by UND faculty, being delivered here at BSC by UND faculty in person. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do this, I know I don't want to do it online. I'll do it in person. And, I, and my thought was really just one class. I'll see, I'll see if I like just one class. And I did. And they kept emphasizing that we should be uh, thinking about our, our dissertation topic. And so every class I took, I had another fascinating topic <laughs> right down to the second to the last class I took. And, you know, so however many classes it was. Um, but, yeah, I finally settled in on – this was, this was a, a, a doctorate in um, teaching and learning in higher education. So it was not in English. But I ended up with a, a topic that you might imagine an English major would end up with. I, I, um, uh, I focused on the writer Wendell Berry. I read his uh, essays and his interviews and everything I could get my hands on to see if he articulated something about what he thinks of education. And he does. You know, he doesn't – there's only a couple of essays where he talks specifically about education, but it's just everything about his writing is education. Well, and then I actually interviewed him, and I, I asked about uh, – eventually I added fiction to my – my uh, uh, study, you know, of his work and, uh, and his poetry to a, to a lesser extent. But anyway, I interviewed him, and, and there's this one character in particular that I, you know, and this is, it's, it's, it's just classic that an English major would end up doing, doing it like this, but there's a, a character that I know I'm supposed to like, and I don't like him. And his, his name is Jack Beecham, and I, I remember... Um, saying to Wendell Berry, how do you suppose he would be, uh, this character would be improved with a good general education? Uh, and he said, oh, oh, a good liberal arts education. That's what it was. And he said, oh, I hate to think of him with a liberal arts education because it would have, it would have, um, you know, changed who he was. Hmm. And and then he went on to say, you know, he was a model for a lot of people, and and um, and it came down to one moment of his fictional life, right? Because Barry writes about the same characters all the time, the same little part of con fictional Kentucky, which is not all that fictionalized. So the same character was coming up in lots of different. Lots of different uh, short stories and novels and everything, but he said, you know, he's he was so indigenous to his place, and of course, indigenous. We don't normally think of, you know, the the children and grandchildren of white settlers as indigenous. But I think Barry's point was that he he was so a part of his place that 
a liberal arts education might have plucked him out of that and not made him, you know, who he was. So anyway, the the one, you know, he said, yeah, he was a model and he helped people and, you know, all this. But he said, and, knowing I would know what this meant, he said, and he stopped Matt from killing that guy after the guy killed his father. Hmm. And as though that was redemptive of everything else this uh, Jack might have done, all the painful stuff um, that I maintain that he caused. But it came down to that one thing. And, of course, that changed the history of this little town going forward. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just, so that made me really stop and think, well, what are we doing with education and what, what, how would Jack have been different with a good liberal arts education? And, um, you know, lots of ways he, he might have been, in fact, that one particular story where there's been this murder and the son wants to seek, his instinct is to seek vengeance on the murderer. And uh, Jack stops him, right? Um, Matt was doing, the, the, the son was doing what was expected of him. Everybody was doing what was expected except Jack. And, and instead of, you know, um, egging him on, he stops him. He actually physically grabs hold of him and stops him. And, you know, this character that wants revenge um, uh, stops it. And the murder was uh, set in the early 1900s. But the, the point when you know the whole history of that little town, fictional town, is tremendous violence, especially after um, the Civil War. That, you know, it was, uh, it was set right um, just south of the Ohio River. So they were, they were Union and rebel um, sympathizers in that area. And, you know, lots of it never really got settled. But that, that moment, um, Barry credits <laughs> in his mind and um, other characters back him up on that, um, that this changed the future for this little town. And, you know, later in the story, a lynch mob shows up and it, uh, led by who was probably the most educated person in the town, the doctor. And he says, we think we should set things right and uh, we're making it our business, and you know. And anyway, it's fascinating, and it got me all off on this tangent that really used Barry's fiction as a reflection of what he had said in his essays. I could go on and on, Michael, but I will stop. Well, it, it made me think of. It took me back to an educational psychology class where we used Emily Dickinson <laughs> as the character profile, and we had it was kind of like, "What would you do if she was your student?" Fascinating. And I wish I could remember more, but of of course, she she was well known for kind of being a recluse. Yes. And, and I, I think she kind of had this fascination for Emerson, and I, I remember like he was in town for a lyceum or whatever, and she was too scared to go. Oh, um, I didn't know that. And she, yeah, it was like across the street, so to speak, and, and she never had the courage to leave the house to go see it. Huh. That's the story I remember anyway. Uh -huh. um, but 
somebody that I mean we think of her I mean one of the mothers of American poetry and yeah um, here she's this character profile for an education class <laughs> um, and, and, and kind of as the as the troubled model mm-hmm. versus the the shining student mm-hmm yeah well fortunately we have technology now and we could probably uh, zoom into that Emerson lecture, and she could benefit from it. It would be on YouTube before you know it. She wouldn't have her camera on, I'm sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure not, yeah. Or certainly not her microphone as well. <laughs> so what do you wish people understood better about English as a, a major or a career? That we're not just people sitting in front of our books like an American consumer in front of a television reading for pleasure, that it's not, we're, we're not glorified book clubs, that there's actually a methodology and, and I mean, sorry, pedagogy <laughs> that, that, that guides us in what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we miss, I mean, there are definitely courses and, and assignments and whatnot that can, be as seemingly as trivial as a television commercial or um, even an episode of The Walking Dead, so to speak, hypothetically, but that that, that there are concrete practical values as well as um, ones that are a little bit more abstract, but it's as it's as rich and detailed field as any other out there, uh, and it has so many uses. And I guess maybe that's the one thing I lament about the English field is I, I felt that I was that I came to the discipline at a, at a crossroads where a lot of my professors were from the old school, where they would walk us through a text page at a time, pointing out all the, the different things that we might see on Jeopardy that next year. Um, <laughs> this, this is the prime example of a metaphysical conceit. And, and of course, I'm talking about something in, in Milton's Paradise Lost uh, or, or whatever. Um, and then kind of the new model going forward was kind of less top-down information pouring into the student as well, getting the students to kind of pour it in themselves and come up with the right mixes and, and, and what have you. Um, but where I was going with this is I, I remember when I was finishing my undergrad, um, one of my unofficial advisors, Dr. Coghill, lent me a book, like kind of like what to do with an English major, of course, because that's the cliche mm-hmm. that every father asks their child who says, I want to be an English major. is like, well, what are you going to do with that? Um, well, I'm going to be a bank teller, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a true story <laughs> for a year. But um, there, in that book, it, it talked about all of the different skills and all of the different professions that one can go into. And of course, they're talking a lot about the soft skills that we talk about today when we talk about the humanities. But it also talked about how it's transferable to journalism or political science or... Law. 
or law, um, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a great undergrad for a, for a law student yeah. or somebody who wants to go into to college relations, for instance. The, but now, I mean, these are all great fields, and an English major can thrive in them. But they're, they're they all have such specified fields now yeah. that the the English major has lost a little bit of its teeth. If you don't know how to market your skills, or you don't really, you can't identify the skills you have. You're gonna, you're, you might struggle in the field. That mm -hmm. you really have to know how to sell um, what you've been trained and what you've trained to do and what you've been taught. Now you ask me that question: What I wish people knew? Well, hey Jane, what, <laughs> what do you wish people knew about the field? <laughs> well, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had the experience of you know saying, "Well, I I teach English," and the reaction often is, "Oh, I better watch my grammar." <laughs> and so I wish we didn't think of studying English as so much about rules and correctness, and more about. I wish we thought of it more as the beauty and the power of language, because that's what attracts me to it. I agree. I, I think ideas precede punctuation, for, for lack of a better way to put it, or yeah. mechanics. Yeah. That the ability to communicate critical thinking in writing mm -hmm. far has, has far-reaching value than, than making sure that you have the right punctuation in an MLA citation. Well, and getting back to, um, you know, marketing yourself for um, other kinds of careers, um, you know, n not, that, not that a career is the be-all and end-all, but, you know, we got to make money. So um, when you think about what do, you, what do you get as an English major, well, you learn reading skills, you learn research skills, you learn... Um, something else that I can't read in my notes, and you learn how to write. Oh, you learn how to synthesize. That's, that's, oh. the, that's, <laughs> that's the one I can't read here. Yeah, research, synthesize, and write. And so what you don't know, you can teach yourself. Uh, what you don't know, you can, you can teach others. Um, so really, it's a very versatile. The other thing is supporting what you say with evidence. One of the great things about literary analysis is that discipline of saying, I think this poem is about death, and, and then say why you think it's about death. Uh, you know, give evidence from the, the text of the poem itself. That's a great discipline. That's why I chirped in with law, <laughs> mm. because, you know, that, that sort of habit of the mind is very valuable. I've stopped many bad arguments being presented to me with the simple condition of, yeah, can you show me the evidence on that? Yeah, yeah, Aww. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I just feel it. Well, that doesn't work. Show me, show me where it says it, yeah. Well, and, I, and I think that goes back to another myth about literature and poetry or whatever the case may be. Is like, well, I, it means what I think it means. It's like, yes. Eh, it means what you think it means up to the point that you can support that with the text. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's another myth. I wish people would um, uh, embrace poetry as more of a reflection of who we are as human beings. It's like the lyrics of a song. You know, we love songs, we love lyrics, but then when it when it's just poetry, it's like, Ugh! but we should we should learn to read poetry out loud, 
and appreciate it that way. Also, this whole idea of, you know, the hidden inner deeper meaning kind of stuff, forget that. <laughs> just Let's just appreciate the poem. Right. Uh, in, in fact, um, Billy Collins was the he was poet laureate in like 2001 to 2003, give or take a year in there. I believe it was two two consecutive terms, but one of his projects as the laureate was he came up with a book called Poetry 180. Um, in fact, I use it in my poetry class to this day, and it's 180 selected poems that he selected, um, specifically 180 because that's the number of days in, in a K-12 uh, oh. academic year. And the idea was is that the school... The schools were to incorporate one poem a day, whether that be in the morning announcements uh, or what have you. But it also had the condition that the teachers weren't allowed to talk to their students about it in a way of, so what does this mean to you? Oh. Um, and they just had to listen to it, have it be a part of their day uh, and not have to, as he, as he coined the term, put up your poetry anti-deflector shields. Uh, that somehow get installed right around the time that I actually fell in love with it. So is it all Collins poems? No. Or it's just, it's fact, just great poems. Correct. I uh -huh. think one or maybe one poem is his, but I would say the, the rest are from, I, there's a couple poets in there that may, may have two, but um, Mostly contemporary poetry. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to yeah. see any Shakespeare in there or even really anything. Um, I, I Actually, I honestly think it's all contemporary. Yeah. Uh, but just that idea of uh, let it be. And, and, and he talks about, too, um, having poetry on buses or places where it's just that you're not used to seeing it. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been on Delta Airlines, or at least in the past, and, and splurged for the earphones. One of the stations they had was a poetry channel. Oh, I didn't and, know that. And that, was, that came from his work as the poet laureate. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Well, this is my math background. When you said poetry 180, my thought was, let's reverse our thinking on poetry. Maybe that, that was probably it. That was probably <laughs> it. Well, that's one of those things that probably had more than one, one meaning, which is you know, part of the richness of language. Well, can you support that with the text, though? Um, yes, you could. Yes, I could. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could. I could indeed. Um, but anyway, it's about making connections in the world and with human beings. And that's those are the kinds of things I like about English as a, as a discipline, as a, as a study. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And there was something in there while you were talking that, like, before I got the the, the Collins thing that, that sparked something, but it, 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 as as quickly as it came, it left. Well, that's another uh, problem. <laughs> so many ideas, we can't keep track of all of them. So, yeah. Um, I suppose my students would be disappointed if I didn't ask you what superpowers have you gained from being an English major? And while you're thinking of it, ask me. Yeah, well, well let's start with you so I can ponder it in the back burner while, while, while we talk. So what, what superpower has 
the humanities given you, or English in specific? English in, in particular, but uh, but I uh, I would extend it to um, the you know the study of literature, the study of rhetoric, writing, so on. I would say it boils down to the ability to read minds and change minds. So the the power to read minds comes from understanding uh, of people, and of course this is hyperbole. Um, I'm, I'm exaggerating things for effect, but the, the ability to understand people based on study of literature, I, I think, is a very real thing. And so you you sort of, well, what what are these people thinking? What are the what are the clues that tell us what a character is thinking? You know, is somebody tapping their finger? Uh, you know, nervously? Are they? you know, whatever, twisting their hair, coquettishly, whatever it might be, um, that those are the little clues of what that character is thinking. You can transfer that to real life. And then, so that's read minds. Change minds is um, the power of writing and the power of words to influence and inspire and motivate uh, people. So again, it's hyperbole, but that's kind of how I look at it. So what you're telling me is that the stormtroopers in episode four were English, were, or actually no, Ben Kenobi was the English major to the stormtroopers. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my answer: is to to read minds and to change minds. That, okay. That's exactly okay. what I was. Gonna, no, uh, <laughs> it's a really good answer, and and, and I don't know if uh, it's. I, I still don't know if I have a good answer for you. Um, I know I, I. I know I warned you I was going to ask you this. And I've thought about it, and I. I mean, there's of course there's, I don't know if it's a superpower, but there's obviously the ability to time travel. Uh, oh, that's good. I like that. Uh, can I that, add that? Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, time as travel. long as I, if I'm stealing from you, you can steal from me. <laughs> I mean. The, in that same, I mean, obviously we can't time travel. I, 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 not first, yet, anyway. Not yet. Um, I, I have a hard time believing that it's something that we'll ever be able to do as a human being. Um, but And, of course, it goes back to understanding uh, other people. But whether it's a historical text or a science fiction text, um, we're all dealing with people and... and I think one of the things I've learned as, as I've gotten older is that whatever generation it was, we all think the same. <laughs> um, that that my great-grandma in 1920, probably really not much different than my grandma in 1980 or my mom as a grandma in, in 2015 or whatever the case may be that, that, yeah. that we have a lot of the same human urges he, uh, human trials and, yeah. and, and, but it's an, it's an ability to travel I guess uh, thinking superpowers again too okay so maybe time travel might be a little far-fetched not that super super uh, powers aren't in themselves <laughs> but um, teleport teleport uh, Teleportation? Yes. My favorite. <laughs> um, that I, I just rem remember like Choose Your Own Adventures as a child, the, the books, um, and, and 
with the turn of a page, you could go somewhere where you can where you weren't a moment before. Yeah. Um, and books, in a sense, are that same thing. Um, but so I guess I don't have a strong singular answer, but it's that ability. Time to... Time travel is pretty good. I it, yeah. I wouldn't be ashamed of that okay. answer. That's. I mean, that's a superpower for sure. It feels like it's a hippy-dippy answer to the English <laughs> major, though. That's why. That's maybe where I, it's like it's... Well, what, what it makes me think of is um, science fiction. You know, you think, oh, science fiction, anything could happen in science fiction or, or fantasy. And yet there has to be, for it to be uh, compelling, I guess, there has to be this kernel of truth in science fiction. And very often that means we are connecting it in some way to human nature and what our experience is. Would this character, even in a galaxy far, far away, would this character really do this? Is this believable for this character to do this? And I think when it's not, that science fiction is going to be less uh, successful, less compelling. And I think you just completely separated the Star Trek crowd from the Star Wars crowd. How so? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I know, and I'll probably get crucified for this. Oh, boy. But, but now, wait a minute. Let me just contextualize my experience so you'll know how to t- give examples. The only Star Trek I've ever really watched is Kirk and McCoy and Spock. Okay. Okay. And... Really, the only Star Wars I've seen are the are the the classic ones from the seventies. Which are really the only ones. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so I'm I'm ready to to lay this on me, Michael. Well, what do you say? When I say the only ones, we're talking about Star Wars. Your your, your right. version of Star Wars. Well, to me, to me, I, uh, don't get me wrong. It's a great story. Um, it, the 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 hero's journey and all of that. We talking Star Star Wars. Wars. Okay. Star Wars. Uh, but to, there's a lot of bells and whistles. Um, oh yeah, that 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 are a distraction to the story, um, and, and it's it's fun and it's interesting. And as a child, it, it, it's it, it's it's great fantasy play to to be on the planet Hoth while you're walking in the snow or whatever the case may be. Or I, I don't know. I don't think I was ever in the desert as a child, but I could imagine being there with my droid if I if if that were the case. But it. Outside the the kind of archetype of the of that hero journey, um, I don't know. To to me, Star Trek is so much richer. Uh, it's not about the bells and whistles. It's the human stories that they're telling. So you don't think that little with the tricorders was baffo special effects? They did have actual scientists on their writing staff to make sure that things could jive with science, yeah. as did the Big Bang Theory. But and yes, there is all of that. But yeah. If you if you and I'm talking about the next generation, the the real Star Trek, <laughs> uh, Picard over Kirk any day. But the the whole idea of the Prime Directive and, and the way that Jean Luc Picard. Uh, really tried to understand the other cultures and civilizations they came across and and really how uh, they were all kind of different representations of humanity at different stages uh, in in, in its evolution. But 
to me, what really kept that series compelling was the the, the humanness of it, mm-hmm. and, and really, it, it shaped my politics absolutely. <laughs> that I mean, that's the kind of world that I want to live in. It's like to me when I watch Star Trek: Next Generation, I I, I see the 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 human history that I am participating in leading to that, or at least hopefully, rather than just more of the the dark forces versus the good forces. Um, hopefully we've done away by that. And Well, see, now I think I'm going to have to watch a little Next Generation. It's probably still available, right? Uh, if, in fact, I think if you, if you don't have cable, you can still watch it uh, on, net, on Network Rabbit, well, whatever the modern-day equivalent of Rabbit Ears is. Oh, my goodness. Um, fun fact, most of uh, Dr. McCoy's handheld uh, medical devices were salt and pepper shakers of various shapes and whatnot. <laughs> I will have to rewatch some of that yep. with a new eye. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But I think you're absolutely right. What I always wonder is, is that because we're English majors, do we value the human stories because we're English majors? And would, you know, like an a engineer appreciate more the gadgetry and what did you call it the bells and whistles bells and whistles see that even that is an embarrassment for you to say uh, in the same sentence as a engineer but i think there may be some engineers who differ in opinion but i and i guess what i mean by that is i don't think english majors hold the exclusive rights to that view yeah. I, th- I think uh, statistical trends if we want to bring math into it would say yes that uh, pro- you're probably right that that depending on your field, you might focus on a different aspect of it. But I don't know if it's English majors or maybe humanities majors that mm. would, would maybe see that, whether it's philosophical, um, historical, um, literature-driven, yeah. whatever the case may be, see it differently. The- theological. Theological, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That, that then, but you could also look at the world or the continuum of, of the Star Trek world through a psychological lens, absolutely, mm-hmm. or a sociological lens, um, or pretty much any field that we teach here at BSC. I mean, really, we should become Starfleet Academy. I think so. I mean, if you're <laughs> You list- know, there's a branding idea we've, we've uh, overlooked. Administration, if you're listening. <laughs> if you're listening. Starfleet Academy. <laughs> Well, Michael, how do you see this in your daily life? Um, often. <laughs> uh, besides, besides science fiction, television. I guess I, I can't get up every day, get out of bed, and participate in a world that isn't taking these kind of ideas into consideration, which takes me back to that hallway in Minneapolis where if all I'm looking at is an account report and where the number's at, eh. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I just remember the, the, as a graduate student and a graduate student teacher and a horribly I would say a horrible public speaker, or at least an uncomfortable public speaker, 
going to school one day to teach and I'm nervous as I'll be and cause I'm still fairly fresh at it and um, and then I just I, I'm at a, I was at a, a stoplight on, on the way to NDSU on, on going north on probably 10th there and I just started giggling <laughs> and it's like why am I giggling I asked myself and it's like I'm getting paid to go to a room to talk about literature with other people who paid to be in that room <laughs> to talk about literature. That's pretty dang cool. Um, and and to, to then also extend that to these students and tell them why we're talking about literature and, mm -hmm. and, and that it's not just Oh, we want to appreciate a good story. Um, that there's that there's more to it um, than just a Scribner in the 19th century saying, "Eh, I'd rather not." <laughs> yeah, I prefer not to. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the truths of the human condition, uh, as as I like to say, and and that that is what we get from literature. And yeah. Um, and maybe one day we can produce that literature, Jane. Yes, maybe so. <laughs> um, but also, uh, another superpower I think English majors get is an appreciation for absurdity. <laughs> is that a superpower? I think so. Okay. I think so, because a lot of people don't seem to uh, see it. But there you go. What is the absurdity that you so appreciate? Uh, Can you give us an example? Almost every, but I was thinking about you giggling at the absurdity of you being paid to talk about literature, that that, you know, that's delightful to you. And, you, you know, you use the word absurdity. As delightful as my mother. <laughs> so I giggle that I'm going to a room to teach literature to other people who in a room to learn literature. I think my mother probably gets that same giggly sense when she realizes my her son is a, a college professor <laughs> um, because for five years she didn't think he would ever even have an undergraduate degree. <laughs> well, you, you've made your mother proud, Michael. <laughs> I think that's, so. <laughs> that's good. All right, listen, I got this quote here that I want to talk about. Um. Okay, yes, making connections and supporting uh, with evidence, that's one thing. But, but here's the other thing. I, I learned this quote recently, and I think it kind of sums up um, what I like about studying the, the humanities or having a background in the humanities. So the quote is, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. This is by Voltaire. Uh, and can you remind our listeners who that is? Voltaire is this French guy that I should have done a little research on. Oh. But French philosopher. So not the wizard that made Tom Hanks big. Uh, no. No, no, not that one. No. <laughs> and I, I wish I could say I read it in the original French, but of course I didn't. Um, anyway, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Now, first of all, it's beautiful language. It's nicely balanced, you know, make you believe absurdities, make you commit atrocities. Good, good rhetoric. 
Good rhetoric, yes. Um, absurdity and atrocity. There's some nice uh, echoing of sounds in that, so it's it's poetic and all of that. But there's some history in this and some understanding of history that, that, that Voltaire based the statement on, that he has seen this over time or in his study of history, this kind of human nature that we can, if, if, <laughs> if we can be convinced um, of a absurdity, then it, that same person is likely to be able to make us commit atrocities. But so there's there's also rhetoric and logic in that so that we know, well, what are the absurdities, right? How do we know an absurdity when it's coming at us? That's often logic. It's often rhetoric. But then there's also the moral philosophy involved in this uh, in being able to recognize what's atrocity. You know, what, what is an atrocity? Where, where do we draw the line? This is bad stuff and this is atrocity. Um, and then the, the final thing, like, like I like to say about humanities in general, is that it, it states what is to me a recognizable truth, uh, something that I've experienced in my own life that I can witness through the study of history that comes up in literature, all this. And to me, that's um, the best thing about studying literature is that it's really studying truth. And there you have it. As we move into the 21st century, or, or, I mean, we're already a fifth of the way in, but as we continue to move throughout the 21st century and we continue to engage more technology that maybe takes us away from what we currently think of as humanity, that it's, it, it will never leave that. And we just have to understand our role and, and how that role might change, whether that's as a student, as a teacher, or just a human being. Human being, yeah, yeah. How we can influence the direction we take things based on our understanding of our own humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think here's perhaps here's a closing thought. One of the things that I feel that being an English major has taught me and, and I'm sure other students, professors in, in other fields may say, might say the same thing, but I really do feel that being an English major, a student of the English discipline has taught me how to be my own teacher. And I know we touched on this a little earlier, but because of my ability to read, analyze, contextualize a text, that synthesize and synthesize i don't necessarily need the instructor to go through the book with me that i've taught myself my, or my, rather my instructors have taught me how to engage the material and and do something with it and sure if mike mccormick would add a great um, deal to a history class that that the book could never give me but I feel that I have the skills um, that I could sit down with any book, in the, uh, particularly in the English discipline, and, and be a good teacher of it, mm -hmm. whether that's something that I've studied before, like native literature, or something that I may have only have um, slightly touched. Um, and I, I suppose I can name a, a dozen different things, but I mean, why? 
Mm-hmm. Let me tell you one memory I have. Very soon after you were hired, I was teaching a class, and the, the issue came up of, of um, you know, how you use present tense in writing about literature. Whatever you say is happening in the story, is, is, um, you, you express it in present tense as though it's always happening because it's in this story. Right. And, but there was a flashback in the story. And my students said, well, what do we use here? This is a flashback. Should we use past tense? And it, it kind of blew my mind. And I remember I came into the English office, uh, and, and you were the only one there. And I thought, well, I don't know him very well, but we'll see what he thinks. And, you know, we talked about it, and we, yes, it should still be present tense. And, you know, there are ways to make it clear that it's a flashback and blah, blah, blah. And then as I started to leave, you, you stopped me and said, and may I just add, can you believe we get paid to have these kinds of discussions? <laughs> so there you go. What do we find from our English majors? Joy. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What a perfect way to end. Okay.